This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Make no little plans, was the saying of Daniel Burnham, famous Chicago architect. Our guest today has made no little plans. He has attempted to define the American South, to explain what caused the Civil War, and to revolutionize the writing of history itself with technology. In his spare time day job, he's also the president of the University of Richmond. His name is Edward L. Ayers, and he is our guest today on Civil War Talk Radio. As a child, I spent a lot of time at the big office building, just reading books. My mom insisted I stay in the highway on-ramp to finish my education. So she dropped me off the office building before going to her second job. She didn't want me working at the vacant lot like my dad. When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. To learn how you can help protect places in your community, visit nationaltrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council. Answer the President's call to service. As an AmeriCorps member, I know that Americans everywhere are helping each other, showing strength of character. As a Senior Corps volunteer, I know that Americans are showing kindness and compassion. As an AmeriCorps member, I see plenty of American spirit and enthusiasm. Together, we make America strong. Together, we make America great. Find out how you can serve at nationalservice.org. It's your world. It's your chance to make it better. Apply online at nationalservice.org. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you this afternoon in the autumn of 2008 from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, but as always, not speaking for the university or uh, the history department or any other subsection, and I'm sure my guests do the same, although he actually runs his own university. Uh, uh, perhaps there's more liability there than, <laughs> than we want to recognize, but we'll, we'll deal with that when we come to it. Um, a few housekeeping announcements, as always, as we get started here. Uh, first, a reminder, there will be no live show next week for the Thanksgiving holiday. We'll come back a week after that. Um, if you want to support the show and my book reading habit, feel free to donate to CivilWarTR at AOL.com uh, using PayPal, the modern convenience. Or if you just want to send uh, suggestions, uh, uh, send them to me here at East Carolina uh, University. Uh, and I'm always happy to look for suggestions for future guests on the show. Uh, in current Civil War events, uh, last week I was at Gettysburg observing the uh, Lincoln Forum's 13th annual meeting, and uh, one thing that I found striking about the uh, battlefield changes, uh, there is, of course, the new visitor center opened. Uh, we're still hoping to get the superintendent on the show one of these days to join us and talk about that. But the visitor center has indeed had some of the economic effects predicted. A number of the souvenir shops on Emmitsburg Road, uh, Business 15, uh, have closed up. They're not getting the same foot traffic they got when uh, 
the visitor center was right there on Cemetery Hill, and the big buses parked there, and people walked up and down the street to buy their uh, ice cream and T-shirts and so on. So uh, that may not be a bad thing altogether. Some of those buildings may actually be able to be moved. One hotel is now gone that was there for many years from the path of Pickett's Charge. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it has certainly had a, a negative effect on at least some part of the town's economy. So uh, there are good and bad in all things. In the uh, no, no current news on the struggle against the Walmart in the wilderness, but uh, as we said before in the show, uh, stay in touch with the um, Civil War Preservation Trust and other groups that are fighting to keep Walmart from building a store uh, in the middle of the wilderness battlefield. Well, enough on current things. We now return to the past. And uh, to our guest today, um, our guest is Edward, Edward L. Ayers, uh, president of the University of Richmond. Uh, are you there, Mr. President? I certainly am. How are you doing today? Good. Uh, uh, please uh, call me Jerry. Uh, don't try to pronounce the last name. I, can I call you uh, Edward? Or oh, Ed? Ed. Uh, wonderful. I, I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, in, in the minor leagues of university administration, I've been acting chair of my department for two years and uh, just dipping a, a, a toe in the pool of administrative work. It's incredibly time-consuming, Yep. and I am just in awe of anyone who can move as hard up the ladder as you have and uh, not completely lose your bearings as a historian. Well, uh, that, that's, a big, that's a big assumption there that I've not lost my bearings, <laughs> but, but I appreciate the benefit of the doubt. Thanks. It, it's, um, it, especially in these times uh, here, if you're downloading this show uh, years in the future, we're talking in the fall of 2008 right now, and, it, uh, and times are hard. Uh, the stock market has gone uh, deeply down and budgets are being cut, and I'm sure you're suffering the same thing at your institution as we are at ours in terms of looking at what we're going to do next year. Yeah, I, I will say, having been at a public university for the 27 years before this, the University of Virginia, uh, being at a private school does give you some insulation, but there's nowhere to hide from this. There's every asset class and every source of income and everything is down. So, yeah, it's it's pretty bracing. So that's why I'm happy to talk with you for hours and hours so I don't have to look at my email again. <laughs> no, that, that's, uh, it, I've come to look at this as my weekly one-hour vacation when right. we can just chat about uh, the past. North Carolina has been, relative, I wouldn't say insulated from the, the, the trouble. Our budgets are being cut, but it's, there are a lot of states in worse shape than, yeah. uh, than the Upper South right now. Yeah. Um, well, Unlike in the Civil War era, right, when we bore the brunt of the whole thing, right? That's right. Now, you are a, uh, a North Carolinian uh, originally, is that That's correct? right. That's right. Born in Asheville, and uh, my family is from way up in the mountains of uh, Yancey County from all the way back into the 1830s or, or so. We've never really done the genealogy, so we don't really know too much about them. But, um, and so my great-grandparents and grandparents live way up there in the mountains, and when I was three years old, my mom and dad moved up to East Tennessee, which, if you know the boundaries, you know, the shape of North Carolina and Tennessee, you can say how, how it can move up to Tennessee there in the west, right. uh, to Kingsport, Tennessee, and worked in the, in the factories there. And I grew up there and then went to the University of Tennessee. But so, North Carolina is very much a central part of who I am. And, uh, you know, I, I'm a historian because I spent so many summers up there with my grandparents who didn't have a telephone until I was 15 years old. And you know, still went out and just grabbed the chicken by the neck and, and you know, still 
salted their own pork and you know made their own butter and all that sort of stuff. So that made a big in, impression upon me about the, what the past might have looked and felt like, and I was never really able to get over it. Well, I'm fascinated by that. I spent uh, part of this week reading your collection of essays called What Caused the Civil War? Uh Reflections on the South and Southern History, which I know all the listeners will uh, very much enjoy reading for an introduction to your work. And you have an autobiographical essay in there. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in Michigan, uh, in Detroit, in the heart of the industrial Midwest, and only moved to North Carolina five years ago with uh, the academic job market. I've been interested in the, the Civil War in the South uh, pretty much as long as I can remember, but not from any personal experience of it. You wrote, on the other hand, that, that you didn't really, I, I guess what's the word, recognize the, the southernness of your surroundings uh, until you left the area. That's right. We, uh, we knew we were hillbillies, as I say, but not that we were southerners. Uh, you know, people may still be able to hear the faint twang in my voice despite 35 years in academia where it's not the most highly valued accent one person can generate. And, uh, but, uh, and my wife, too, is also from East Tennessee. And so we had a, a sense, you know, when people would look down and see if we had shoes on when we told them where we were from and so forth. But um, sharing sort of a southern identity, especially any kind of anything associated with the Civil War. I mean, there were no statues anywhere to the Civil War where we lived because we basically shot each other in East Tennessee and Western North Carolina. It just wasn't a part of the identity. And uh, so we were thought of ourselves as mountaineers, but not as Southerners. I I was just in Asheville for the first time this past weekend, uh, and what a glorious uh, location that is there. Oh, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, And I, I of course, went to the the Thomas Wolfe house Mm -hmm. to... See that, and and it, uh, he had the experience. Thomas Wolfe did, of course, of going off to Harvard uh, as a Southerner, uh, and, and and going to the most uh, New England place imaginable, I suppose, in Harvard University. Uh, you went to Yale University for your that's right graduate work. So so you you had the same experience he did to to a degree of plunging right into. Yeah, you'd have thought that, you know, I would have been old, you know, I mean, I, I got through Tennessee in three years, and I was a social worker for a year in good East Tennessee fashion, got married as soon as I possibly could, and and uh, so I went there as a married man and graduate student, so I'm sure it was diluted in, to some extent, but uh, they're just, uh, people were amused by us, <laughs> and especially in, uh, as I say in my little essay there, I, I told many stories, many of them largely true, <laughs> about what it was like to grow up in Appalachia, and um, so it was. I went there to do intellectual and cultural history of of the United States, and never I'd never taken a class in any history before 1900, um, and uh, was not interested in the Civil War, and certainly not the South at all, except getting out. Uh, and I got up there and realized that there was a history that I didn't know exist, which was a history of everybody, not just of the leaders. And I found that really compelling. And then once I knew I wanted to do that, I knew what people I wanted to write about. So it fell into place in just the first year or two, and really I've never looked back. It was the right choice, but I just didn't realize that that was an option, uh, was to write the history of the South. And I had the great good fortune of studying with C. Van Woodward, the, the, the greatest historic, Southern historian. And, and uh, it's not that he paid any particular attention to me or anything. I taught, took the very last seminar he ever taught. And uh, he was gracious, but he was also 
not looking for new students or anything. And uh, and fortunately, I'd attached myself to David Brian Davis, the great historian of slavery, um, and uh, he was willing to tolerate my uh, fascination with the South. So it all worked out, but I could hardly say that I had some boyhood vision of what I wanted to do, and I've been fulfilling. I've basically been lost and confused my entire life. Now, the uh, you mentioned becoming interested in, in social history and yeah. the history of everyone other than the the men on horseback. Yeah, uh, and that I, I find that interesting. In that 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 has now become to a large extent the new orthodoxy of the profession. Yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly in the last twenty thirty years, I. I went to Harvard. One of the perks of this show is I get to remind people I went to Harvard, uh, so I have to do that regularly. Um, <laughs> Feel free to use it again later if you like. We'll look for other opportunities. Thank you. <laughs> Were you a Donald student? I, I was. Yeah, um, uh, that was a, a great honor. And sure. Uh, now, uh, David Donald's accent, his Mississippi accent, actually grew stronger the longer I knew him. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I think he... he successfully played that card. Well, I've been living in Virginia for 28 years, so it doesn't have as much cachet. If I moved back up north, I I, I could cultivate it again. Exactly. (laughs) What I found, though, that by uh, maybe just just not a a half a generation, but just a few years uh, uh, later, starting graduate school in the mid-'80s, my interest was drawn to the Civil War, uh, had been in, in the Civil War, and not uh, I, I don't want to say I was not interested in, in the social history, but the, to some extent, I, I saw in history a chance to learn about things more interesting than my own life. Uh, yeah. uh, to, to read about the industrial workers of Detroit, for example, as my, my uh, uh, colleague and friend Tom Segrew did, and as a great success with, uh, to me struck me as like the last thing I'd want to read about. Right, right. Um, that, but, but it was different for you. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think of them as my people. And, you know, I just I felt a, a sympathy for people who were patronized, and um, and I, that's kind of who I've written about. You know, let's just let's just don't take anybody for granted uh, of any sort, and try to um, see them in the fullness of their lives. That that's really my whole shtick in history, and uh, it turns out that. I find that it's people are writing off just millions of Southerners and, you know, just not even taking them seriously enough to think about what they were actually thinking and putting them in these various kinds of boxes, whether they were enslaved people or slaveholders or Confederates or whatever. And it's not fashionable to do that. You know, uh, as you know, the American Academy is not really much of one to, um, you know, bend over backwards to try to understand what white Southerners were thinking and feeling. So, you know, I, as, as time went on, I do have people on, men on horseback in my latest book, you know, In Presence of Mine Enemies, and realize you can't write a history of war without warriors. And it turned out, of course, to be fascinating, as does military history. So, you know, I, I was in graduate school before you, and in the 70s we were just discovering this social history, and it had not quite a ossified into uh, an orthodoxy and with the, you know, the, um, the sort of code words that you have to use and so forth. And to me, it, was, it just blew the doors open of all possibility. And, and, of course, we overreacted and acted as if you couldn't possibly write about the Civil War or about uh, powerful men. And uh, now we've, we've gotten over that, and we can imagine ways to try to combine the various forms of history. I, I think that's... Uh, an encouraging thought that the 
that we've reached the synthesis of the two, uh, uh, not going back to just writing about the officers or just writing about the which brigade moved onto which flank and who shot who. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think women historians really open the door for other Civil War historians by showing, okay, look, you can do, be a, a Civil War historian and a woman historian of women. And African-Americans historians have done the same thing. Uh, so I, I, it strikes me compared to the 70s. And I was in graduate school with a lot of either Vietnam vets or conscientious objectors who had fulfilled their service and were now coming back. But 1975 in New Haven was very much a continuation of you know, 1970. Um, and I'm a little bit younger than those folks, so I missed all that. And I was just sort of showing up very naive and you know fresh face but these people were in many ways still really living with the the the, the conflicts from 1965 to 1972 and and uh, nobody wanted to talk about war and uh, of any kind and it just you know people just didn't write about the civil war or care about it that I knew but that began to change in the 80s and uh, we were the beneficiaries of that I think I when I interview people on this show, uh, I'm always looking for people who've written something of, of interest about the Civil War. And as longtime listeners will know, two out of three, three out of four times, the authors who appear here are not academics. Uh, right. They are lawyers, doctors, uh, scientists, people who do something else, journalists often do something else for a living, but they're deeply fascinated with the war. And in their spare time, they write uh, often very, very uh, deeply researched Mm-hmm. books. Theoretically, I often have issues with uh, their approaches, but uh, uh, but finding an academic who will write about the war uh, is, is often a challenge. Uh, is it that, um, I'll tell you what, I'm hearing the music that tells me we're going to take a short break, but okay. I'll come back and ask you that question. Okay. Uh, and I'll be ready. If, if Vietnam kept us from the war for so long. Okay. We'll come back, listeners, in just a moment. We're talking with Edward L. Ayers on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you. 